0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show. Today, I'm going to be talking to Stephen Mosher of the Population Research Institute, breaking down how communist China is lying to all of us, why they are lying to all of us, and what the truth behind the headlines that you read actually is. That's coming right up. Stay with us. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to the scholar and social scientist Stephen Mosher of the Population Research Institute. He was the first American social scientist to be allowed into communist China to research what was going on there. He's testified before Congress. He's written books and articles in almost every mainstream media outlet drawing attention to what has been going on in communist China now for decades with a special expertise in the one-child policy. He's been a major critic of China's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, and he has written many articles explaining how and why China is lying to us, what the implications of all of this is, and above all, what China is trying to do with this pandemic. So without further introduction from me, here is our conversation. All right, just to start off then, could you give our listeners a a bit of background information on communist China? A lot of people are kind of confused as to, is this a wholly communist state? Is it a hybrid uh, of communism and capitalism? Let's just start unpackaging some of the background here so that people have a better sense of what they're reading when they read the news.
1: Yeah, Jonathan, that's a really big question. I mean, the Chinese Communist Party was started in 1921. By 1930, it had conquered part of China. It had invented in the 1930s brainwashing. In fact, we get the term brainwashing from the Chinese phrase, Xinao, which literally means wash brain. Now, it's important to keep that in mind because very from the very beginning, the Chinese Communist Party has believed that it can create its own reality. Right. Abraham Lincoln said you can fool some of the people some of the time, uh, but you can't fool all the people all the time. The Chinese Communist Party does not believe that. They believe that you can fool all the people all the time. And those people who refuse to be fooled are counter revolutionaries and they should be imprisoned or killed. Now, when we talk about mass murder, we've got to understand that the Chinese Communist Party is the biggest killing machine in human history the number of people who've died at the hands of this particular political extremist party, dwarfs the number of people killed by Adolf Hitler, dwarfs the number of people killed by Paul Pott, dwarfs the number of people killed by Joseph Stalin or any other mass murder in history. We're talking about lit over 100 million people who have died. Now, if you add to that the, the unborn children who were sacrificed to 35 years in the one-child policy, uh, you get a total death toll around 500 million. That's a number so large, that's a number so large that that people's minds sort of go blank when they hear it, right? George Orwell once said that we feel more compassion for the dog we hit on the road than we do for the you know uh, 12 million victims of Stalin's Ukrainian famine. Uh, 12 million is just a number, 100 million, 500 million is just a number. Each one of those, however, is a unique, irreplaceable human being a child of God, a little daughter of uh, Eve, or a little son of Adam, who's been eliminated by this political party which has absolute total disregard for human life. So everything you think about when you hear what's coming out of China in terms of the, the Wuhan virus, in terms of different political campaigns, has to be viewed through that lens. The first priority of the Chinese Communist Party from the beginning has always been to seize power, and to hold power and to keep power. And that was true in the case of this pandemic as well. Their first thought, uh, the authorities in Beijing, their first thought when they came, became aware that they had a, a pandemic on their hands in Wuhan was to make sure that it did not in any way damage the power or the prestige of the Chinese Communist Party. It's always politics in China first, last, and always. But the absolute regard for human right, uh, life is is hard for those of us uh, who are Christians, who are Catholics to understand, because we understand that everybody is fundamentally equal and that they have a unique uh, soul that was gifted them by God that, that after they pass through this life, uh, that soul hopefully will be with God forever in the next. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party is explicitly atheistic. It rejects that notion It regards human beings as nothing more than animals. And that's why they embarked on the one-child policy. They thought that the herd was growing too large, and it was time to thin the herd. And so they simply went and forcibly aborted hundreds of millions of young pregnant moms uh, against their will. Uh, But for them, it wasn't a moral choice. For them, it wasn't something that ethically they had to think about, reflect on and come to some conclusions on. They just did it because they are pure materialists um, who are interested only in, in aggrandizing their own power. So that's that's the kind of people we're talking about. When we talk about the 94 million members of the Chinese Communist Party in China, especially as you get closer to the top of the pyramid mm-hmm. with the Central Committee and the Standing Committee of the Politburo and then Supreme Leader, Xi Jinping himself, um, uh, these, are, these are not nice people, Jonathan.
0: I, I want to back up a little bit and get to something you just said there for a moment, because you said that China actually thinks they can fool all of the people all the time. And what's, what's really interesting, uh, like I, w- I was in China in 2015 uh, for a little while, and, and, and I did, did a bunch of research and went to, uh, went, 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 went to check things out. And one of the things I found interesting is we hired this university student to, to show us around uh, Beijing. And I was asking her sort of probing questions about Mao Zedong, because a lot of our listeners and viewers probably don't know this, but they've got him sort of like stuffed and on display in Tiananmen Square, like a deer head or something like that, right? It's the creepiest thing next to Lenin's corpse that I've ever seen in my life. And people kind of go up to Mao Zedong's corpse on display and they head bob at it. Looks very much like a genuflection. Leave a rose next to this glass coffin and all that. And I, I was saying to her, right, like, you know, he killed by conservative estimates, 60 million people during the Cultural Revolution. And and, and for, for, for me, like a, a sort of a, a, an ignorant Westerner, I was thinking 60 million people means everybody knows somebody who died during during the Cultural Revolution. There's just simply no way that that, that they're supportive of this, right? Even in Russia, you had, you know, the, uh, the de-Stalinization under, under Khrushchev. Like, there must have been some sort of a conversation that happened. And uh, when I asked her a couple of times, she just said that leaders have to kill people sometimes for the good of everybody else. Uh, and then when I pushed her a little bit further, she said... To deny Mao would be to deny Communist Party, just making it very clear to me that the discussion was over. How has China managed to kill so many of its own citizens, over 60 million just under Mao Zedong, and yet managed to, to maintain such an iron grip on the entire population? Because, as you pointed out, this is one of the most murderous regimes, but it's also one of the most phenomenally successful murderous regimes, surely.
1: Well, it it is. And and the way the Chinese Communist Party proceeded, of course, was not to simply uh, randomly kill off uh, 10 or 15 percent of the population. Uh, That, by the way, is the average uh, uh, death toll of a communist regime. Uh, The average percentage of a population that a communist regime will kill off when it comes to power is between 10 and 15 percent of the population. But it's not done randomly and it's done in a, certain, in a certain way, in a certain fashion. The first thing you do is you target a specific population and subject them to campaigns of hate. You marginalize them, you dehumanize them, and once you've worked the population at large into a frenzy against this minority group, then you can execute them with impunity and everybody breathes a sigh of relief because oh, we've gotten rid of these terrible monsters. Well, so let me tell you how that worked out in practice. When I went to China, I was the first American social scientist allowed to do research in China. I was there in 1979, 1980. I read, write, and speak Chinese. I speak Cantonese, the language of the local commune I was doing work in back in 1980. I've lived in Asia for 10 years. And the first thing that the Red Army did when they got to the commune I was living in, in South China, was they took out all the local nationalist officials, and all the members of the local militia, after collecting their guns, took them out to the side of a hill called Little Turtle Mountain and executed them on the grounds that they were class enemies. Now, this was at the end of a, a civil war uh, between the communists and the nationalists. And so people thought, OK, the, nationalists were, uh, the communists were victorious. They killed all the people associated with the nationalist regime. So no one really objected to that. Uh, however privately horrified they might have been about the summary justice. And then they began to target the landlords and rich peasants in the commune. Right. Now, now, when you think of a landlord, you think of someone with a 1,000 acres and, and and 500 serfs. That's not what a landlord was in China. A landlord in China may have had four or five acres. A rich peasant in China may have had uh, two or three acres. Uh, but the definition of a rich peasant was someone who... who rented out part of his land because it was too much for him to farm himself. Right, right. Uh, the definition of a landlord was someone who didn't farm himself and simply rented out all of his land. All of those people during the land reform were turned into class enemies. And, and one by one, they were struggled, they were beaten, and they were ultimately killed. Uh, that's 10 to 12 million people right there in 1952, 1953. And then we go on, and I could go on in, in campaign, after mm-hmm. campaign after campaign after campaign, where specific groups were targeted, uh, capitalists, you know, people who own their own businesses, own their own factory, were targeted, many were killed. Uh, People who expressed views contrary to the government, the anti-rightist campaign of of 1957, 1958, which sent a lot of people, intellectuals to jail for criticizing the communist regime. Um, Now, I add to that 60 million people who were killed in political struggles, I add 42 and a half million victims of the great famine from 1960 to 1962 that resulted from the failure of the Chinese commune. Remember, back in 1957, they herded everybody in China, hundreds of millions of villagers into China, into huge people's communes. The people's commune I lived in was 80,000 people. Wow. It was run by Communist Party hacks who had no idea how to farm, had no idea when to plant when to fertilize, when to irrigate, when to harvest. They were they were political animals first, last, and always. And they ruined the agricultural sector of, of China so badly that by 1960, there was a nationwide food shortage. And again, 42 and a half million people starved to death from 1960 to 1962, the worst famine in human history. And do you know that almost to this day, the Chinese Communist Party denies that anyone died in the Great Famine from 1960 to 1962. That's the formal position of the party. It was three difficult years, they say, Sanyin Kuanan in Chinese, but no one died. People had to tighten their belts, but because of the great, glorious, wonderful management of the food shortage by the Chinese Communist Party, no one died. Flash forward to today, and they tell you uh, 2,530 people died in the city of Wuhan. That's laughable. Right, that's a joke, you know. Uh, we I think that twenty times that number died in the city of Wuhan. To judge from the number of uh, crematoria ovens that were lit off and how long they were burning up corpses. To judge from the number of funeral urns that are being handed out to grieving relatives of those who lost loved ones during the height of the uh, during the peak of the epidemic in Wuhan from January to March. Um, but but you know they their 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 first position of a Chinese Communist Party will be to think uh, not about what is the truth of the matter, but but how to put what happened in the best possible light to promote their own uh, cause, their own promotion, and to promote and protect the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, Again, in 1989, we had the June 4th uh, massacre Mm -hmm. in Tiananmen Square. Uh, We know that 10,000 people died in and around the square uh, on that and the following day. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party to date still says no one died in Tiananmen Square. So even when the evidence is incontrovertible, even when the evidence is massive amounts of evidence is stacked against them, they will continue to lie. Uh, There's a phrase in China that uh, uh, Communist Party officials can lie without blinking. And they're very well trained to do exactly that.
0: It's funny you bring up Tiananmen Square. Uh, I interviewed um, uh, one of the protesters who managed to make it to Canada afterwards some time ago. And that was what I was going to actually ask you is that knowing now that the official accounts from the Chinese communist party are obvious lies uh, and, and lying without blinking is an interesting way to put it because everybody knows that that they are obvious lies. And yet the official party line doesn't change. Um, and like they, they, they're sort of resolute in sticking to the numbers of people who got murdered in Tiananmen square, for example, why is it then? Um, cause this is a question a lot of people are struggling with. It: Why does the Western media seem so credulous when these these Wuhan numbers are coming out e- every day on, on social media and on major media platforms? Look at what's going on in China. It's so great. We have lessons that we can learn from China. Like, not even to get down to, like, well, when they say, well, you know, well how did China get ahead of this faster than us? Well, social distancing is easier to enforce when you can weld people in their homes. But even moving beyond that, These numbers are being accepted at face value, and these are people who should know that the Chinese government has never been honest about any numbers. It's produced on anything. This is established fact in the West, I thought. What is your explanation for how credulous they're being about the news coming out of China right now?
1: Well, I I think there there are two main reasons, Jonathan. One is that uh, it's hard to do uh, on-the-ground research in China. Uh, right. From the beginning, you know, I was in China in 1979 when, when the first New York Times correspondent, friend of mine, Fox Butterfield, arrived in China. When Nicholas Kristof, uh, then worked for Time Magazine, arrived in China, uh, they were watched, they were followed everywhere. Uh, they were prevented from actually doing their job as journalists. And that has been the situation in China for foreign journalists from 1979 on. Right. And, and, and more so now than ever before, the walls have been closing in. Uh, on the Chinese people themselves and on foreigners in China for the last six years of Xi Jinping's rule. President for life Xi Jinping is modeling himself quite consciously on Mao Zedong. There's a new high-tech cultural revolution uh, going on in China today, uh, using people's cell phones, using uh, internet technology to monitor everybody all the time. And uh, it's largely, you know, occurred out of view of the West because you don't have uh, people, you know, a million people in, uh, in Tiananmen Square uh, dressed in Mao suits, wearing, uh, waving little red books in the air, and doing the Mao dance. But they're doing that same dance, uh, intellectually speaking, on their cell phones every day when they do their, their mandatory half an hour study of the thought of Xi Jinping on their cell phone. And you have to answer questions about it on your cell phone, and you have to do it every day. Otherwise, uh, you're politically suspect, your social credit score goes down. So there is a new cultural, high-tech cultural revolution going on in China today. But make no mistake, the foreign journalists in China—and there are fewer, more, the fewer now than ever before—because recently, the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post had some of their uh, foreign journalists expelled from Beijing because they were getting writing things that were a little bit too critical of the regime. So they were ousted, sent out of the country. Uh, foreign uh, journalists are not being allowed to come in the country. In fact, foreign diplomats have been told uh, that they're not allowed to come into the country. Those diplomats who are there already can stay, but they basically closed the, the door to additional uh, foreigners on the grounds that foreigners may bring in the Chinese uh, coronavirus. Uh, the real reason is that if foreigners come into Beijing, they will see the city is basically still on lockdown, that life has not gotten back to normal, and that the coronavirus epidemic is still uh, spreading in China so there's that uh, the other thing's going on of course is we're in in the United States we're in an election year right. and so the the left-wing media uh, the mainstream media uh, Democrat party operatives but I repeat myself because they're really all on the same page they have been for a long time uh, all of these people are hoping that the uh, Wuhan virus pandemic will weaken uh, President Trump and will enable him to be defeated in November. So it's all about politics. So are they, why are they singing from the same uh, music sheet as the Chinese Communist Party? Because it puts President Trump in a bad light. I mean, if China has indeed uh, controlled its, 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 its epidemic in record time with a record low number of infections and deaths, then obviously the United States, which has more infections now and may wind up with more deaths at some point in the future, looks bad by comparison. The fact that China's lying, the fact that the number of deaths in Wuhan alone is probably not 2,500, it's probably more like 50,000, they're not going to report that because that would make America's response and the Trump administration, by extension, look good. By comparison. So, on the one hand, it's politics as usual by the Chinese Communist Party. And you might say now politics as usual by the mainstream media and the Democrat Party. Sadly, uh, that seems to be the case.
0: I want to pull on a thread of something you mentioned a little bit earlier because I've read some extensive essays on this in, in the Atlantic and the New York Times and things like that. But I suspect a lot of our listeners and our viewers won't be aware of a thing that you mentioned the social credit system that they've put in place in China for, for tracking uh, all of their citizens and, and, and this test that you mentioned that they have to do every morning, maybe enlighten everybody a little bit on this. What is the system uh, that the president for life has instituted right across China?
1: Well, beginning about three years ago and, and using um, big data and using artificial intelligence and programs uh, designed to track everybody all the time. Um, they have instituted what they call a social credit score. But it should really be called a a political credit score because that's what it is. It's not not, uh, how creditworthy you are viewed by uh, financial institutions or how creditworthy you are viewed by different social circles. It's how uh, you are viewed politically by the Chinese Communist Party. That's what the bottom line is. Now, people need to understand that everybody in China has a cell phone. And everybody in China uses their cell phone for everything. They use it to buy things. They use it to summon, uh, you know, ride sharing. Uh, they use it to book tickets. Uh, I mean, everything is done in China on people's cell phones. That means that cell phones are sort of the handheld equivalent of the uh, microchip that I think the Chinese government would like to implant in everybody so they could track everybody. They don't need to implant a microchip in someone's arm because everyone has in their hand an electronic device called a cell phone that will enable the government to track them, the party to track them all the time. And not only that, enable them to track everything that everybody in China is texting, is tweeting, uh, is viewing on the internet, what pages they're visiting, what comments they make, what friends they socialize with, where they're going, what they're buying. I mean, it's all there. If you want to know uh, everything about someone other than their personal private thoughts, you just tap all the data on their on their cell phone. So everybody has had in China to download on their, app, on their cell phone a Study Xi Strong China app. It's four characters. Study see, Xi Strong China. Right? 学习强强国. Xi Qiang Qiangguo. So, and that study, Xi Jinping, means study the works of Xi Jinping and, uh, and help him fulfill his China dream that China will become the dominant power in the world. Now, everybody has to do their homework lesson every day. And we were hearing before the, the, the coronavirus uh, epidemic hit China, uh, we were hearing doctors and nurses complain that the fact that they were having to take a half an hour out of their day to study Xi, strong China, and, and not only read the lesson, but answer questions on the lesson and answer them correctly to get credit for it, was taking away from their ability to see patients. We heard from companies that their their, um, their work efficiency was suffering because they were having to take time every day to do these individual political study sessions. So, again, it's like the Cultural Revolution, Jonathan, except instead of the study sessions occurring at night where everybody gets together after a hard day's work and, and, and quotes. Mao Zedong's uh, a Little Red Book at each other, they have to do it during the course of their day. And if they don't, their political credit score, their social credit score goes down. Now what does it matter yeah. if your social credit score goes down, okay? If your social credit score goes down, uh, you have to pay more uh, if you wanna buy a car in terms of interest. If you wanna buy a, a, a house or an apartment, the interest rate that you're charged will go up if your social credit score goes down. If it goes down uh, too low, uh, you will find it impossible to apply for a passport or get permission and exit visa to leave the country. Goes down lower, they will not let you buy a ticket to fly on a domestic airline from one city to another. They will not even allow you to go first class on the bullet train. Uh, you will have to go on the hard seats, uh, third class. Uh, and if your social credit score gets too low, you're not allowed to travel at all. They won't allow you to, to buy a ticket or go anywhere. Um, and if it falls too low, you'll be visited by the uh, minister, you know, by the police uh, who will tell you it's time for you to be reeducated. On the other hand, if your social credit score is high, you can go anywhere you want, buy anything you want. You get a low interest rate. You're treated very well by the government. So this is a an ongoing sort of political surveillance of everybody in China using big data, using artificial intelligence and using modern electronic means of communication. We always thought, Jonathan, that. That true totalitarianism was impossible to achieve, right? Because how would you be how would you be able to watch all the people all the time, right? And who polices the police, right? And people would say, well, you've got you know 1.3 billion people in China. Uh, you can't possibly watch 1.3 billion people all the time, 24/7. Well, you don't have to. They watch themselves. They 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 record using their cell phone, where they are, what they're saying, what they're doing, what they're buying. It's almost like you can almost know what someone's thinking right. by tracking them this way right. on their cell phone. And you don't have to have human intervention, because you have artificial intelligence watching all the time. And if people begin to display a pattern of, of a subversive behavior or suspicious behavior, then you have a human operator come on Look at this person. And, uh, but most of the social credit scoring is done automatically by artificial intelligence. If you're communicating with someone who, uh, like if we were in China, Jonathan, right. and you were talking to me, your social credit score would immediately drop to zero.
0: Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. Because I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm an international spy in the view of the Ministry of State Security of China.
0: Is that a fact?
1: That is a fact, yeah. I was declared to be an international spy some years ago, and I, I think I continue to uh, do interviews like, like this that probably get me extended as an international spy uh, often enough so that I still have that, um, that accolade.
0: So one of the things that I really wanted to ask you as well, because I find talking to most people, when you reference a world leader of some sort, they kind of know who you're talking about, even if they don't know a lot about them, right? So Emmanuel Macron in, in France, everybody knows about the age disparity between him and his wife. Victor Orban, everybody has, in my view, the wrong the wrong view of him. Boris Johnson, everybody knows that he quotes the Iliad in Greek as a party trick. everybody knows things about different leaders. Nobody has nobody seems to know anything about the background of the current Chinese president for life. So I was wondering if you could give us a bit of a background. Like who is he? How did he get to the position of power that he got? Um, what makes him the most likely to to relaunch? Uh, Mao Zedong's uh, cultural revolution, but, but for the digital world?
1: Well, he, he's, a, he's a, what we call a princeling uh, of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, the sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters of people who were on the long march with Mao uh, are the original uh, aristocracy in Chinese uh, Communist terms. Uh, and, and, and they continue to hold high positions in, in the Chinese uh, government and in the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, his father was a, was a vice premier years ago, uh, struggled by Chairman Mao during the Cultural Revolution, uh, later died, but I think, um, you, you know, you might think from that, that because his father was a victim of the Cultural Revolution and a victim of Chairman Mao, that Xi Jinping would recoil from using yeah. Chairman Mao as a model. But I think what he learned from his father's disgrace and, and torture was that the only safe place to be in a one party dictatorship is to be at the top of the pyramid, right. to be the dictator yourself. And so that's what uh, where he came from. So he's a princeling. Uh, if you're a princeling or princess, uh, you, you, you ride an elevator or what they call in China a, uh, a helicopter. You can ride a helicopter right up to the top. Um, you know, you you skipped the, the decade or two of, of serving as a county-level party secretary. He, before becoming uh, the, the uh, joining the Politburo, he was the party secretary of Fujian province. Uh, that's where his clique is. That's where the people that he has promoted a high position in the military and the government and the party come from, in large part, is from Fujian because the Chinese Communist Party is not a monolith. It consists of factions, and his faction is the faction from Fujian Province, which is a province of South China, which faces Taiwan. By the way, uh, we know he has a fake. We know he has a fake PhD. Uh, he didn't actually write his dissertation; it was ghostwritten for him. Uh, we know that he was a compromised candidate uh, during the 2012 decision over who would be the next uh, leader of the Chinese Communist Party, who would be the next head of the Central Military Commission, and who would be the next, um, you know, president of China, because those three roles go hand in hand. Uh, You don't get just one. You see, the leaders of China are both the head of the government, the military, and the party. That's why he has three titles. He actually has has given himself about 12 more titles recently. Hmm. He's now the people's leader. Uh, We haven't had a people's leader in China since Chairman Mao. Where did that come from? Well, again, he's modeling himself on Chairman Mao. So he was a compromise candidate between uh, Hu Jintao's uh, China Youth League faction, which goes back to Hu Yaobang in the 1980s, and a compromise between uh, that and the Shanghai faction that was led by Jiang Zemin, who was uh, the head of the Communist Party before Hu Jintao. Anyway, I don't want to get too complicated, but so you had these two factions, the former president Hu Jintao and the president before him, Jiang Zemin, fighting over who, who was going to get to be which faction was going to get to appoint the next leader. And 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 uh, Xi Jinping came in as a low-key compromise candidate, a compromise candidate, on the understanding that, that he would simply uh, keep things moving along. He would make the trains run on time. He would continue economic growth. No one knew, because he would kept his ambitions very close to his own chest, that he was going to turn out to be uh, the next Chairman Mao and purge, members of both factions that had put him in power. So anyway, that's, uh, that's, that's Xi Jinping. Um, very, very clever in, 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 in a thuggish kind of way. You know, you don't rise to the top right. of the Chinese Communist Party by being a nice guy. You rise to the top of the Chinese Communist Party by being better able to, being a better Machiavellian uh, than anyone else, being better able to hide the knife up your sleeve and, you know, insert it in your 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 uh, supporters back at the appropriate time and rise to the next level. So these are not these are nice, not nice people. Uh, For decades, we've been expecting a reformer to rise to the top of the Chinese Communist Party, someone who wants to fundamentally change the system. That will never happen because those people who rise to the top of the Chinese Communist Party are the principal beneficiaries of the system the last thing they want to do is change it because it would reduce their power. It would invalidate everything they've done, you know, for the 40 years of, of advancing through the ranks of the bureaucracy. So um, yeah, he's, um, he, he's a real piece of work. He's, he's got, um, you know, the, 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 the fact that he's modeling himself under Chairman Mao, I think should after Chairman Mao should, should give pause to, to everybody in China who stops and thinks about it.
0: So it's interesting because that brings me exactly to the question I I wanted to ask next. The sort of traditional narrative goes that after Tiananmen Square, you have Clinton and the West deciding, well, um, we we need to do something to hurry along this reformer that you referred to. We need uh, the Chinese people to get a taste of prosperity. Perhaps they'll reject communism as a result. And let's really open things up with the West. When in reality, what we've gotten is Peter Hitchens puts it really well in an essay in one of his, his recent books. He said that the terrifying thing about Chinese totalitarianism is that they've managed to create a totalitarianism combined with material prosperity for most people. So what would your, uh, what would your analysis of, of the West opening up to China? What was that process like? Because I think for a lot of people um, when, when they're looking at China, they they think of Tiananmen Square and then they think of the cheap stuff we're getting from the factories. But how did this relationship, I want to discuss globalization and, and global supply chains a bit later, but How did we get to this this weird intermarriage, right? It's kind of strange when you hear people talking about all these shortages we have from China for different things to realize how married the West is to the most vicious communist regime in human history. How did we get to that point?
1: Well, we we got to that point by operating under the false idea that if we simply um, provided financial support to the Chinese Communist Party, if we provided modern technology to China, if we provided access to our markets to China, that we would bring China into the existing world order, led by the United States, and that China, for its own benefit, would learn to play by the rules. And at the end of the day, uh, economic progress would lead to the rise of a middle class in China, people who, as they become more prosperous, you know, and have a home and a car, begin to think about, uh, uh, their aspirations for more freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, and that that would create, uh, you know, uh, centers of influence outside of the direct control of the Chinese Communist Party, which would lead it to reform, come to respect human rights, and ultimately result in democratization. Uh, that didn't happen. Now, I i mean, uh, you know, I, I don't want to toot my own horn, but but the Tiananmen Massacre, was for me a wake-up call, because back in the 1980s, I subscribed to the theory that openness to the West, having a million, uh, you know, democratic activists carrying, wearing suits and briefcases, going into China and starting businesses, would gradually bring China around to our way of doing things. That it would be drawn in America's powerful wake, and and give up its failed experiment in in in. Uh, trying to achieve a communist utopia and and follow the example of Japan after World War II, for example, Uh, Japan being a fully functioning, you know, uh, and largely free market democracy. Um, It was clear to me uh, on the morning after the June 4th massacre that those reformers in and outside of the party had lost, that the hardliners were not only in charge in China, but they would go out of their way to make sure that nothing like the Tiananmen demonstrations ever happened again. And that's exactly what they did. And so I was an opponent in 1999. I was in the uh, House and the Senate lobbying against uh, giving China uh, most, you know, normal trade relations, as we called it. I was against allowing China to join the World Trade, Trade Organization because my argument was that China will join the organization as a quote-unquote less developed country and take advantage of the, the, uh, the World Trade Organization rules that give less developed countries exemptions in terms of opening their own domestic markets, and it would succeed in, in, in penetrating ours and profiting off them. Uh, that's exactly what happened. Um, we have, but, but the, make no mistake, the rise of China is not just because, didn't just happen because of the extraordinarily industrious and hardworking Chinese people. That was part of it. The rise of China happened because of a fundamental strategic error on the part of the United States of America. We enabled the rise of the country by opening our markets to China, by financing China's rise, by transferring technology to China. We enabled the rise of the political power that wants to replace us as the dominant power in the world, and not replace us within the existing global system. It wants to fundamentally transform the existing global system to resemble China. It wants to promote one-party dictatorships everywhere. It wants to control international organizations. Why do we have so much false information coming out of the World Health Organization about the China pandemic? Well, because, uh, Dr. Tedros, who is not a medical doctor, who heads the World Health Organization, is from Ethiopia, uh, which has received billions of dollars in investment from China. He's their guy. He he was promoted uh, to be the director of the World Health Organization by China, and he has been carrying China's water ever since. Uh, He is responsible, along with China, for the tens of thousands of deaths uh, from the Wuhan virus that we're seeing. In countries around the world, so this undermining of international institutions. So, in other words, the 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 whole scenario that our elites laid out that we were all going to be one big happy globalist family uh, has turned out to be a, a, a the, probably the biggest strategic blunder in human history uh, made by made by a country, the United States. We have we have empowered the rise of a country that wants to destroy uh, us, our political system and uh, basically our way of life. It wants to move all, industri- all industry to China and turn the rest of the world into a source of raw materials for China's factories and a market for the uh, Chinese consumer goods that the Chinese economy produces. That's the goal of the China 2025 plan, the China uh, 2035 plan, and the China 2049 plan. And they're using the current China coronavirus epidemic to, to promote that. These
0: plans you're referring to are real plans people can read?
1: Oh, absolutely. Oh, these are, these are real plans that have been laid out uh, by the Chinese communist party under Xi Jinping. Uh, the China 2025 plan is to dominate 11 areas of high tech by 2025, high tech areas like artificial intelligence, uh, high tech areas like 5g which is, you know, the, the future of, of, of electronic communication around the world, 100 times faster than the current 4G. Um, uh, other, other um, oh, genetic engineering is another one of the 11 areas. They want to dominate the, the, the high-tech, high ground of the future. And um, they, they uh, during the trade negotiations with President Trump, they offered to put their plan on hold for a few years because they knew that it was, it was uh, disturbing uh, to to uh, you know, Americans and, and the people around the world to think that China would be um, controlling the networks of the future through 5G and China would have artificial intelligence to help it with that control system. But they haven't abandoned it by any, by any means. 2049, of course, is 100 years from the communist revolution which happened in 1949. And by that time they tend to be the dominant power on, on the planet by far. So, you know, this is no secret. This is the China dream that has been enunciated by Xi Jinping since he took office back in late 2012. It's a dream that he still um, is promoting today among the Chinese people. And he doesn't see the uh, Wuhan virus, even though it killed many Chinese and is still percolating among the Chinese population, as a threat to that plan so much as he sees it as an opportunity to take advantage of the weakness of the West to strengthen China's economic position globally.
0: And how is that going? So I've read it. There's a, there was an essay in, uh, in McLean's magazine recently and, and a few other places where a few journalists that have been doing the China beat for a while are, are saying essentially what you just said, which is that the Chinese communist party sees this virus as an opportunity to place themselves as the new global superpower. You see, they've got, they have uh, they have their people in Serbia and Italy, um, you know, Andrew Cuomo was, was, was just, uh, was just on the air thanking China for sending, what was it? A hundred ventilators to JFK. Um, so you, you see them positioning themselves from your perspective as, as, as a China expert and an expert on, on Chinese American relations, how would you say that plan is going so far? And, and what are the, what is the very real danger that we face in this whole situation?
1: Well, the, the first part of the plan, of course, was to, uh, claim that China had completely, um, reached zero deaths from the, the Wuhan virus. Uh, that that's clearly not true. Uh, the second part of the claim was the only, uh, cases of the, the, uh, COVID-19 that were being found in China were, uh, being brought in by foreigners, obviously to create the impression that, that this is now a foreign disease, uh, to try to eradicate the idea that it ever came from China or Wuhan. And, uh, position China as a model for the rest of the world to follow. That's the line, of course, that that Dr. Tedros of the World Health Organization has been following very, very closely. Um, So that's what Chinese propaganda can shift on a dime. And for a while, they were saying actually that the uh, coronavirus came from the United States. Uh, They backed off on that a little bit (laughs) Because it was obviously absurd, but they're still holding up China as a model and shipping medical supplies to different parts of the world. world. People need to understand that uh, uh, back in in uh, February, uh, Chinese agents were buying up medical supplies, personal protective equipment, uh, face masks, um, you know, N ninety five respirators, and uh, and actually uh, ventilator machines from around the world they wiped out, for example, Australia's supplies of all of those things. And they shipped them uh, by means of their own private uh, cargo jets from Australia to China. And that means that today, uh, Australia is short all of these items and is having to buy them back from China at um, exorbitant prices. I mean, talk about profiteering from uh, from a pandemic. Um, so, so that's what... Um, that's what China is doing. Now, China wants to come out of this stronger. How will they do that? Well, one way is by buying up, at this moment, distressed Western companies for right. pennies on the dollar. Stock prices have fallen into the tank. A lot of companies can be purchased for um, uh, very much less than they're actually worth. And China is going out and, and starting to buy companies. Uh, two weeks ago, it bought British steel, by the way because it wants a global monopoly on steel. It is moving towards a global monopoly on aluminum. Um, it moved towards, wanted a global monopoly on pharmaceuticals. And now because of the, the, the epidemic, it probably won't achieve that goal because uh, we're going to pass legislation to bring back some of the manufacturer pharmaceuticals to the United States. But China operates by means of cartels. It sets up a cartel in one industry of, of nominally privately owned state owned companies. They set prices very low with subsidies from the Chinese government. They destroy their competitors overseas. And once they have a monopoly on the market, they do what cartels always do. They raise prices and make an enormous profit. They've done that in industry after industry after industry. So, again, uh, this is China not playing by the rules. This is China putting its own interests first and, and foremost. And, you know, we know what the game is now. Right. And and we can't we can't let China win. Uh, a world under Chinese domination would be a poor place. It would be a place that's much less free, where there are many many more human rights. It would mean the gradual destruction of of, of democratic rule. I think um, that's not that's not a world that that I want to live in. I certainly certainly not a world I want my grandchildren to have to live in.
0: One of the the things that's interesting is there's been a lot of discussion uh, about whether or not. We're learning a lot from from what's happening in this pandemic. So, for example, um, the the premier of Ontario, which in if Canada's roughly 34 million people, nine million people live in in Ontario. Used to be a manufacturing hub, of course. Now, like like the Rust Belt and everywhere else, manufacturing's all gone. And the premier came out uh, last week and essentially said, "We're bringing manufacturing jobs back. We are never ever going to be caught in a situation ever again where we need medical supplies that we can't make ourselves." Um, That's done. We're we're, going to bring this all back, especially because a lot of people are pointing out the fact that there's going to be a lot of jobs that disappear throughout this pandemic. One way to bring jobs back is to bring back some of the manufacturing that's being done elsewhere, especially as we've realized how dangerous it is to let other countries make your stuff, especially when that country happens to be your major competitor for being a global power. So what what do you there, there's two ways that this could go. Pe- people even asked me in one discussion, well, what do you think about the European Union uh, and their performance through all this? You really don't like the EU, so you must be happy that they're not doing well. And I said that depends on who replaces it, right? As the as the Roger Kipling poem goes, right? You know, always stick close to nurse for fear of meeting somebody worse. I don't like I don't like the EU, but I like Red China uh, a lot less. So so. Do you think that globalization is going to take a hit from this? Do you think that because of this pandemic, Western countries will have realized that they need those manufacturing jobs back, that we should be producing these things ourselves, or, or do you think that China um, is is doing pretty well at this point in, in the plan that you laid out earlier?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not an economist, but um – I have followed China's economic uh, development over the last 30 years very, very closely. And and I think the Chinese Communist Party leaders realized very early that you had to actually make things in order to be powerful. And that if you make things um, like washing machines and cars and planes, you are also able to make things like tanks and ships and and fighters and bombers. So you need a strong manufacturing base. And, and so that's what they set out to do and by, by this cartel strategy and by state subsidies. And they're still, they haven't abandoned that by any means. They won't abandon that. They'll continue to use it as long as they think it's to their advantage. Uh, they also realize that each manufacturing job generates an economy of seven other jobs. And service industry doesn't do that each service industry job generates about two other jobs because of the cash that moves through the economy uh, as a result of restaurants and and other forms of of service industries. Um, So manufacturing is key to not only national defense and national security, it's also key to keeping your your economy healthy. You have to have a balance uh, between all of these things. Uh, We thought you know 20 years ago people were saying well we don't need uh, Heavy industry anymore in the United States because, after all, we've got Silicon Valley. Well, uh, Silicon Valley products are awfully easy to steal uh, by cyber espionage. If you can get access to a computer and plug in a fast drop, a uh, flash drive, you can you can steal you know a billion dollars worth of intellectual property in a few minutes and take it back to China. So it's very portable. Uh, it's hard to protect. And it cannot be the sole basis of a thriving economy. I think we, 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 we now realize that. Um, so China's been playing a very, very um, dangerous game for the last 20 years, uh, stealing intellectual property, cheating on trade, uh, forcing companies that invest in China in return for a promise of Chinese market share to hand over their, their cutting edge technology. Well, guess what? Once they hand over their cutting edge technology, local Chinese domestic competitors wind up with it and are producing the goods more cheaply than the foreign uh, the owned company, which is eventually, after being squeezed dry of its technology, squeezed back out of China. So I think for the first time, uh, because of the pandemic, uh, because Wall Street, Fortune 500 companies have learned that uh, the China market isn't all it's cracked up to be, that there are not huge profits to be made in China because the Chinese A Communist Party will not allow that. Um, There's a phrase in China, you know, that uh, you don't let um, uh, which means that that fat water does not run into other people's fields. If you fertilize your rice, uh, (laughs) your rice paddy, you don't want to let that water from the rice paddy run into someone else's fields. They're determined to keep their fat water in their own field, which is China. Now, I don't think that China's rise is is, uh, preordained by any means. Uh, I was getting pessimistic in 2016 about the fact that we seem to be so late in waking up to the China threat, that we seem to be so, doing so little about the theft of our intellectual property and, and the destruction of, of our industrial base. I mean, uh, for 15 years, it was almost like China was carpet bombing uh, our industrial base in Michigan and, uh, and, and Minnesota and, and Ohio and, and you know, the, what we call the Rust Belt states. Uh, I, think, I think for the last four years, we've, we've stopped that. Uh, we need to, to, uh, to turn it back around and bring back manufacturing to our country. China has uh, major um, hurdles itself to overcome, which may result in its own destruction. Uh, and I'm not talking now about the pandemic that China has unleashed on the world. That's only one of the problems that China now has to deal with. Another problem is China's population is aging and dying. This year, in the year 2020, China's population is shrinking for the first time. Uh, How do you shrink a population of 1.3 billion? Well, you eliminate uh, 400 million unborn children by forced abortion.
0: Mark, Mark Stein said that in his book America Alone actually about China.
1: Yeah. So, so China has a, an aging and dying population so it, it has set up a demographic trap for itself. It may fall into the same kind of demographic recession that we see uh, has kept uh, the Japanese economy in the doldrums for the last uh, 25 years or so. Uh, the other thing it has not going for it is the 94 million members of the Chinese Communist Party who live, eat, drink, uh, visit five-star resorts, hold banquets, uh, ride and chauffeured limousines, all at the expense of the Chinese people. They produce very little, these 94 million Chinese Communist Party members, except tyranny, but they consume an awful lot. One economist in China estimated the total cost of the Chinese Communist Party to the Chinese people was a trillion and a half dollars a year. Wow. That's a substantial amount of money. Yeah. And and so that's that's... It's as if the Chinese people have been and will continue to have to carry the Chinese Communist Party on its back as they advance into the future. But the biggest handicap is this. Xi Jinping is very much enamored of state-owned enterprises, those big dinosaurs that, again, require state subsidies to continue in operation. We believe that, that there are $4 trillion in state subsidies being given to things like China Rail, the China steel industry, the China aluminum industry, the manufacturing across the board. $4 trillion a year in subsidies because these state-owned enterprises are good at asserting political control over the people because you work for the state, right? Basically, you're a government employee, so you wanna do what the state tells you to do, but they lose money, and so they have to be subsidized. So that's $4 trillion uh, down the drain each year. China Rail, for example, People see the new high-speed rail throughout China and the new subway systems in second and third-tier cities, and they say, wow, uh, that's really impressive. They don't understand that China rail is $700 billion in debt, that the, the money they're getting from people riding on those subways and riding on those expensive bullet trains is not even going back to pay the interest on that debt. That money will never be paid off. Uh, that loan will never be paid back. The Chinese banks, which are run by the Chinese Communist Party, will have to eventually eat those loans. So yeah, it looks good on the surface, high speed rail, lots of new skyscrapers, lots of new building, but all of those things are in debt. And I don't think those debts will ever be paid off because they weren't, the buildings weren't built and the trains weren't built because there was a need for them uh, that was shown by market analysis. Uh, They were built because the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party wanted China to look modern and oh. developed. And so they've, they've, they've burdened the Chinese people with huge amounts of debt that will never be paid off. So uh, China does have its problems. And if we stay the course uh, as the pandemic comes to an end, and if we have a hard a disengagement from the Chinese economy, and if the Trump administration says to China, You promised to buy $200 billion worth of goods Uh, by the end of next year. You haven't kept your promise, so the tariffs are going back up. If we say to China, you have to pay reparations, war reparations for this war you have unleashed on the world of several trillion dollars. If we do these things, I think it's possible, possible that the Chinese Communist Party could collapse under the weight of its debt, under the weight of its pressure from overseas, and under the weight of the, 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 the cries of the Chinese people, who are, remember, the first and foremost victims of the Chinese Communist Party are the Chinese people themselves.
0: Do you think that this crisis, from where you're sitting with, with your knowledge, do you think that this is going to lead us to decoupling from the Chinese economy?
1: Well, I, I hope it's certainly a decoupling from the Chinese economy. Uh, we're certainly going to decouple uh, pharmaceutical manufacture from the Chinese economy now because we realize that that allowing China to control the production of medicines is really not good for the health and well-being of the Chinese people. And I do think that, that the pandemic has will have one other effect. It has woke, woken up the world uh, to the danger of a rising China. We normally say that, you know, about 5% of people pay attention to foreign policy. Most of us, you know, 95% of Americans and Canadians and people around the world are happy uh, to uh, spend their time worrying about their own families, their own job, their own businesses, the education of their children. So very few of us normally think about foreign policy. We leave it in the hands of elites, elites who have failed us, by the way, because they've been wrong about China for the last 30 years. So now I think uh, the vast majority of, of people in the West and around the world will see China for what it is a threat. Uh, to themselves and their families, to the well-being of, of their health and well-being, to the the, the the future of their country, and and hopefully we can all join together and and stop not only stop China's advances around the world, but help to uh, to roll back uh, some of the aggression on the part of China. It's very worrisome to me that while the world is in the grip of a pandemic, that Chinese. Um, uh, maritime Coast Guard vessels and Chinese so-called fishing vessels uh, are ramming uh, and sinking Vietnamese fishing boats, are ramming um, Japanese cruisers, um, and are engaging in other very aggressive acts in their, in their, their waters. Um, does Xi Jinping want uh, to create a foreign diversion? Uh, from, to distract the Chinese people from the suffering they're now enduring under his misguided rule. Uh, maybe you can't rule that out.
0: One one of the things I just wanted you to, to explain, I know a lot of listeners and viewers would have seen a, a viral video that ex- sort of exploded on Twitter and other social media platforms of a, the World Health Organization spokesperson. His name escapes me. I think it's the one you referred to earlier. Uh, essentially asserting that Taiwan was part of China, refusing to answer questions about how Taiwan had dealt with the pandemic. And for a lot of people, I noticed even from the comments, people were kind of like, catch me up. What's this whole thing about? So I thought uh, as the context provider for China, uh, you could maybe give us a brief rundown on what on what that's all about and then what it tells us about the WHO and why you've been so suspicious of what the WHO has been doing.
1: Yeah, you know, Dr. Alward, who is uh, Canadian, by the way, has spent yeah. his entire life, Sorry about that. He spent his entire life uh, working for the World Health Organization, and he was tasked to lead the first World Health Organization delegation to Beijing. I think it was mid-January. And he came back basically saying the same thing the World Health Organization has been saying all along, and that is that China is doing a wonderful job in controlling the epidemic. We know that's not true. Uh, China is being transparent in sharing data from the epidemic. We know that's not true. Uh, and uh, basically reassuring the world that everything was under control. And we know now, uh, sadly, in hindsight, that 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 was uh, simply a fabrication. In other words, um, he's repeating, he's parroting exactly what the uh, Chinese Communist Party propaganda uh, told him when he was in China. And, you know, you you have to understand uh, that that so many people, uh, when they go to China, they're completely lost in 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 the sense that, first of all, they don't speak, read, and write Chinese, so they can't even read the street signs. They can't talk to ordinary people in 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 a, in a way that that they and 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 the people will understand. They're entirely in the hands of their minders, their officially provided translators, who tell them only what the government wants them to hear. So you can visit China. And spend a week there and not really learn anything about what's actually happening because you will never have an unsupervised encounter with any ordinary chinese um you know if you go to new york and you get in a taxi a taxi driver will tell you everything you want to know about what's going on in the city he's free to speak well you won't be allowed to get in that taxi in beijing you'll be in a chauffeured limousine you'll always be with a government minder But someone uh, working for an international organization, of course, should be more sophisticated than that. But I'm afraid that, you know, the WHO, which gets 10%, I think 10.2% of its funding from China, regards China as one of its big bosses and has been compromised and so won't say anything to offend China. Um, On the other hand, the United States, which spends, which provides about 20% of the world's health organization's budget, um, Uh, very, very, very seldom gets a kind word from the World Health Organization because they know that uh, there will be no consequences if they offend um, the American administration. But if they offend China, uh, you know, the next time that the directorship of the World Health Organization comes up for review, uh, that, that Dr. Tedros knows he will be replaced by another Manchurian candidate from China.
0: So what's the context of the, of the Taiwan comments? Because a lot of people aren't really clear about the Taiwan-China distinction.
1: Well, you know, uh, China regards Taiwan as a wayward province that properly should be brought back, uh, if need be, by force. They've never given up the idea of recovering Chi- uh, Taiwan by force uh, back into the embrace of the motherland. Now, the fact of the matter is that, that Taiwan is a de facto independent country of 24 million people on an island sitting 100 miles off the coast of China. The people of Taiwan have had a fully functioning democracy on the island since 1994, with now I think six, seven presidential elections, where you had a peaceful transfer of power from one political party to another, which is the ultimate test of a democracy, right? When the guy who loses actually gets up from the presidential desk, cleans out his desk and leaves without without trying to stage a, a coup. Uh, so they have a fully functioning democracy, freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of assembly, respect for human rights. Uh, the Chinese people, the Taiwanese people, they call themselves, the Taiwanese people on Taiwan, I uh, have everything that the people on mainland China are being denied in terms of freedom. They are a beacon of freedom for the mainland. And they are an example of how um, the Chinese people are fully capable of having a fully functional democracy uh, if the day comes that uh, the Chinese Communist Party can be overthrown. Um, and, and of course, they. Uh, one of the reasons why we saw demonstrations in Hong Kong over the last summer was because the people of Hong Kong, also Chinese for the most part, would like to be free as well. And their freedom is being compromised by the Chinese Communist Party. China has driven... Taiwan out of every international organization. It has driven Taiwan out of the World Health Organization and out of other international organizations. Even though in this case, that has cost lives around the world. And I'll tell you why. Taiwan is always fearful of anything from coming from China. Um, Taiwan has lived under constant threat of invasion from China for the last 70 years. Taiwan along its east coast, which is the, the west coast, which is the coast facing China, has watchtowers and gun emplacements because they're constantly on the alert for danger coming from mainland China. They were burned by the SARS epidemic back in 2003 because China lied in 2003 about the severity of the SARS epidemic and people died, not only in China, but in Taiwan. And so that was an object lesson for Taiwan. At that point, it drew up plans for the next dangerous virus that it was sure was going to escape from China in the future. It stockpiled personal protective gear. It stockpiled hand sanitizer and face masks. It got a program in place ready to implement overnight of quarantine and and checks at, at the airport. And that's exactly what it did. As soon as the first cases were reported by China to the World Health Organization in early January, uh, Taiwan immediately started checking all, all passengers coming in from China to see if they had symptoms of the Wuhan virus. And then when China locked down the city of Wuhan on January 23rd, the very next day, I think the same day, Taiwan locked down all air travel from China to the island. You see, it wasn't going to wait. It wasn't gonna fall for China's lies a second time. It simply stopped all air travel, and it handed out you know, hand sanitizer, handed out 100,000 thermometers to people. Everybody in, in Taiwan now every day checks their temperature every morning before going off to work or going off to school. They put hand sanitizers at the entrances to all the buildings and elevators throughout the country. People are to use them every time they enter or leave a building. Um, everybody's in face masks. But you know what, Jonathan? They haven't shut down the economy. Right. Their economy is still humming. Kids are still going to school. They've kept the number of cases down to a few dozen. Uh, they've kept the number of deaths down to a handful. Because why? Because they took action early and and they blocked uh, travel travelers from coming from China. Um, the same travelers of course were the ones who brought the coronavirus to Iran and to Spain and to Italy and to the United States and, and other countries. Um, Taiwan acted early. So Taiwan should be a model of course, for how to stop the COVID-19 from spreading throughout your population. The World Health Organization should have held up Taiwan as a model. In fact, it won't even talk about Taiwan. The best model we have for containing the virus, they won't even talk, the World Health Organization won't talk about because they're too busy carrying water for China.
0: Well, help us understand that. What what must people in Taiwan and the leaders in Taiwan think when they see a video clip like that, where you see essentially the the head of the World Health Organization erase their existence and just pretend that they're a part of communist China? rather than a functioning democracy. That must be especially a, a dispiriting in some way.
1: Well, it is. I mean, uh, there are now, uh, six years into Xi Jinping's uh, rule in China, there are now ever fewer countries uh, that have diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Um, I think the most scandalous thing the World Health Organization did uh, with regard to Taiwan was Taiwan's Center for Disease Control was passing along to the World Health Organization, all of the, I think it was 138 different measures that it was taking to contain the coronavirus in Taiwan. And it was passing along all the data it was getting from not only Taiwan, but from China through its own intelligence agencies. And guess what? The World Health Organization didn't even bother to pass along this vital information to other countries. It just sat on it because it didn't want to offend China. I think I think they ought to change their name from the World Health Organization to, let's see, uh, maybe the China Health Organization, uh, because they're, they're serving China's interests. They're not serving the interests of the health of either the Chinese people uh, or the people of the world.
0: Final question is, a lot of our listeners and viewers have trouble figuring out where they can get good information on everything that's going on. It's very... To cripple a democracy, of course, as you know, you don't give people too little information. Sometimes you just have to give them too much, and people don't know quite what to think. So for people who want to know all the sorts of things we've just been discussing for the last hour, what are some reliable sources you would refer people to uh, to get this kind of information?
1: Well, Jonathan, I I write articles for LifeSite News, uh, which, as you know, is a great source of uh, information about this and other subjects. Uh, I also post everything I've, I, I'm writing on uh, our own website at the Population Research Institute, which is pop.org, P-O-P dot O-R-G. Pop is short for Population Research Institute, although I'm a pop too. I have nine children. But this pop is short for Population Research Institute, pop.org. That's where all of it is is posted. I do, I finally, at the beginning of the, coronavirus pandemic, I finally did create a Twitter account at Stephen W. Mosier, um, where I reflect on things on a daily basis, and will continue to do so until we get through this. Um, I just think we, we, we there's so much misinformation being put out on China, by China, and on China, mm-hmm. by the mainstream media, that it's important to have sources uh, that see the Chinese Communist Party and see what's happening in China. I mean, I've got direct, I'm in direct contact with people in China. I can read uh, what's being put out in the Chinese, of uh, Chinese propaganda in the original, and I can read what manages to escape from, from, from behind the great Chinese firewall uh, in Chinese. So uh, I'm trying to stay abreast with everything that's happening there.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and just sort of hash through all this with us.
1: I appreciate I appreciate the interview, Jonathan.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with social scientist Stephen Mosher on how China is lying to all of us and what their endgame in all of this actually is. If you want to check out other stories or other podcasts, head over to lifesightnews.com. If you click on the podcast tab, you can watch past shows there. Uh, our podcast can be found wherever you get your podcasts, Thanks so much for listening, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.